Welcome to A.T. Stewart and Sons Ministries. I'm your host, A.T. Stewart. I'm glad you've chosen to join us today as we look into the Word of God. So take your Bibles and let's hang out in God's Word for a few moments and see what God would say to us today. What's the one thing that sets Christianity apart from all other religions of the world? Is it a belief in God? No. Many religions believe in God. Is it a belief in eternal life? No. Other religions believe in eternal life. Is it belief in forgiveness of sins? No. Other religions believe in the forgiveness of sins. Or maybe it's a belief in heaven. No. Other religions believe in heaven. The one thing that sets Christianity apart from all other religions of the world is the resurrection of Christ. Now, what's the one event that proves the deity of Jesus? That proves He was more than a man? You might say, well, He he did miracles. Well, others have done miracles. For instance, the Old Testament prophet Elijah did miracles. Well, it, it it was His teaching, His religious teachings. Well, others have given religious teachings. Moses, for example. Now, the one thing that shows Jesus' divinity, that shows He was more than a man, is His resurrection from the dead, never to die again. What is the one fact that undeniably sets Jesus above Mohammed, Confucius, Buddha, or Abraham, or any other religious leader? It was His victory over death. Jesus alone predicted His death and resurrection. Muhammad never predicted that He would be resurrected from the dead. Confucius never predicted He would be resurrected from the dead, nor did Buddha. In fact, Muhammad died in June, on June the 8th, 632 A.D. in Medina. His tomb is there today. Thousands visit that tomb every year. Buddha lived and died. If you asked his followers if he came alive from the dead, they would say no. He never claimed he would. Confucius lived and died. But Jesus Christ died and lives. And He's alive today. What is the one truth that changes Christianity from being a wishful religious idea to a spiritual, life-changing reality. Is it the belief in eternal life? No. Is it faith? No. Is it hope? No. Is it belief in heaven? No. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is that power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that changes lives of men and women, boys and girls, in the 21st century. What is the one event in Jesus' life that it were not true, it would immediately eliminate salvation from sin. It would eliminate forgiveness. It would eliminate the life-giving power of the gospel. It would eliminate the deity of Christ. It would eliminate eternal life. His resurrection. Because if Jesus Christ did not live past the grave, then neither you nor I can expect to live past the grave either. If He did not come alive from the dead and was resurrected, then we have no hope 
that we will ever be resurrected. Christianity rises and falls on the truth of the resurrection of Christ. This is why it has been attacked throughout the centuries. Those who have attacked Christianity have attacked the resurrection because they know if they could some way disclaim the resurrection of Christ, and Paul himself said if there was no resurrection, we're the most to be pitied because we're going around proclaiming a resurrection. And if there is none, we have been duped. So it should be no surprise to us that there are attacks on the resurrection. The most recent attack has come through the Discovery Channel special called The Lost Tomb of Jesus, which aired a few weeks ago. Now on the Discovery Channel news website, if you can see, there is an article entitled, Jesus' Family Tomb Believed Found. Now let me read you what this article presenting, representing this and promoting this special says. New scientific evidence, including DNA analysis, conducted at one of the world's foremost molecular genetics laboratories, as well as studies by leading scholars, suggest a 2,000-year-old Jerusalem tomb could have once held the remains of Jesus of Nazareth and his family. The findings also suggest that Jesus and Mary Magdalene might have produced a son named Judah. Now, first reading of that, you think, whoa, man, they've got evidence, don't they? Well, as you look a little closer at what the promotion says, notice it says, suggest a 2,000-year-old Jerusalem tomb could have once held. And then the findings also suggest that Jesus and Mary Magdalene might have produced a son. Kind of iffy at best, isn't it? Well, let me tell you what they actually did find, and then let me tell you how what they found could in no way, if someone is being intellectually honest, have been construed to have been the tomb of Jesus. First of all, what they found in 1980, and that's 27 years ago, this ossuary, this tomb was found with these bones, and actually had the bones of 35 different people. But they found six inscriptions in this tomb, and the names on these inscriptions were Jesus, son of Joseph, Mary, Mary, me and me, of Morah, Matthew, Jaffa, and Judah, son of Jehua. Now, the Cameron, uh, John Cameron, who produced this special, takes this information and tries to deduce from it that this was a family tomb of Jesus. I mean, look at those names. I mean, hey, Jesus, son of Joseph? I mean, I would. Mary? I mean, what else could it be, right? Well, it may on, surface, on the surface look like these facts could add up, but when you look at the truth, you need to realize that at the time of Jesus, the names Jesus and Mary and Joseph were extremely common. In fact, 25% of the women at that time were named Mary. If you're, I was reading in the Gospel account 
just this morning of the crucifixion of Christ. And there were three Marys at the cross. Mary his mother, Mary the uh, mother of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So, even in the Gospel, it was a common name. One out of every four women was named Mary. Also, Joseph was a very common name in those days, as was Jesus. One out of every ten boys was named Jesus. So, should it surprise us that we find a tomb that has these names in it? Now, number two. Dr. Evans, a Ph.D., an archaeologist, did extensive research at this site and other sites in the area. And he says this tomb contained the bones of about 35 different individuals. He also noted that about 100 tombs in Jerusalem have been discovered with the name Jesus, 200 with the name Joseph, and many more with the name Mary. So, to conclude, because these names are in a tomb, that it was the family tomb of Jesus is stretching it. Now he says, what about the DNA evidence? Well, first of all, we don't have any DNA evidence of Jesus. So there's no way anybody could claim, hey, DNA evidence shows this is the tomb of Jesus and these are His bones. We don't have any DNA of Jesus. So that can't be to start off with. Well, what the DNA evidence did show in these, in these bones, the one of the one called Jesus and the one that supposedly was Mary Magdalene, although scholars say that name, Mary me, Mara, does not translate to be Mary Magdalene. Uh, but everything falls with that. If, 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 if that's not right, his whole reasoning falls. But what the DNA evidence simply showed was that these two persons were not related through their mother. So Cameron says, well, then they were married. Well, maybe they were just stepbrother and sister. Maybe they had the same father. And simply didn't have the same mother. So the DNA evidence doesn't really show anything positive. Next, and probably one, to my mind, one of the strongest arguments is, where was Jesus from? Where was His family from? Were they from Jerusalem? Or were they from Nazareth? They were from Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth. Well, the custom was, number one, to bury your family where your family is from. You know, you live here in in Mableton or in Cobb County, we would not expect you to be buried in Washington, D.C. You know, if you had no relatives there, if you had no reason. Now, Jesus' family was from Nazareth. If he had a family tomb, it would have been in Nazareth, not in Jerusalem. Also, only the wealthy people had their tombs. And Jesus, as you know, was from a poor family, and remained poor throughout his life. Well, what about the leading scholars, the special says? Well, Mark Phillips, a CBS News correspondent, says, the archaeological establishment has lined up to label this claim as bunk. So all these scholars that supposedly have lined up behind this special are not there. And number five... Number six, William Deaver, an expert on Near Eastern archaeological and anthropology, archaeology and anthropology, who has worked with Israeli archaeologists for five decades, says that specialists have known about this tomb for years. And the fact that you've not heard anything about it ought to tell you something. 
So all of this was built on speculation. Very thin, at best, evidence. But one thing that probably disturbed me as much as anything was in an interview that was done with John Cameron, the producer of this special, he made the comment that faith and scientific approach are totally opposites. He says the scientific approach is based on facts. He says, but faith by its very nature doesn't need facts. You just believe. Now people, I want you to know that Christianity is not a faith that is void of facts. Our faith is built on solid facts, on evidence. And when all the evidence is examined, what makes the most sense is to believe based on the facts that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and He died for our sins and He was resurrected on the third day. Now Paul, over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, is writing to the church at Corinth and they are questioning their own resurrection in the future from the dead. And so Paul says, first of all, he wants to establish the resurrection of Christ. Because if we're going to be resurrected, it's necessary that Christ was resurrected first. And so Paul in his reasoning says, I'm going to show you, I'm going to give you evidence, irrefutable evidence of the resurrection of Jesus. And then we'll talk about your resurrection. Because if He was not resurrected, neither will you. But if He was, then your resurrection is certain as well. And so over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15... In the first 11 verses, Paul gives solid evidence to prove the resurrection of Jesus. Evidence that anyone living at that time that he wrote it could check it out. Unlike this news special that is built on very thin factual evidence that's twisted and turned, Paul's is very clear evidence. And again, when he's writing to the church at Corinth at this time, they could check it out. For themselves, they could verify the truthfulness and trustworthiness of these evidences. Now, I'm going to be reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. We shall read through verse 11, and I'm going to ask you to stand in respect for the Word of God. Now, I'll make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and which also you stand. By which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, After that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am. And His grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet, not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it is I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. You may be seated.
May God bless the reading and the hearing and the obeying of His Word. In these verses, Paul gives five proofs, five evidences for the resurrection of Christ. Number one evidence is the existence of the church. The existence of the church of Jesus Christ. The church was not born and does not exist based on the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. The church was not born and does not exist on the basis of the life and teachings of Jesus Christ, though, though those are very important to the church. The church was born and the church exists on the basis of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that changes the lives of people today And that's what the church is all about, people being changed by the power of God. You see, the very fact that these Corinthians were Christians whose lives had been changed was evidence that the power of the gospel, which is the power of the resurrection of Christ. Over in Philippians 3.10, Paul talks about the power of the resurrection. And he says that I might know Him and the power of His resurrection. Paul realized the same power that brought Jesus from the dead is the same power that works in the lives of His children. The lives of believers. That same power. The power that defeated death and defeated sin is the same power that defeats sin in the lives of believers. At the heart of the gospel is the resurrection of Jesus. And the good news that that power that raised Him from the dead is available to change lives today. Look at what Paul says about that gospel. First he says, I preached it to you. In verse 1. He says, you received it. You stand in it. And then in verse 2, by which you were saved. You see, these people's lives had been transformed by the power of the Gospel. Over in the sixth chapter of this same book, Paul speaks about the transforming power of the Gospel in the lives of these people. Look at what he says in verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. After we mention in all of those people, look at what he says in verse 11. Such were some of you. He says, some of you guys who in the church today were these drunkards, were these fornicators, were these idolaters, were these adulterers. You were. But you were sanctified. But you were washed. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Paul says, you were like this. But then God got a hold of you, and by the power of His Spirit, He washed you, He set you apart, He made you right with Himself, and He freed you from this bondage to sin. That's evidence 
of the resurrection of Christ. For if Christ was not raised, there would be no power to break sin's hold on human beings. The things that we cannot do. That's why, apart from Christ, we can try to reform, and we may reform temporarily, but we keep falling back. Because it takes more than human effort. It takes more than willpower. It takes the power of the resurrection of Christ, which is in every believer. So Paul says, look at the existence of the church. That's the first proof that Christ was resurrected because that same power is working in people's lives today to transform them into the image of Christ. Second proof, the testimony of the Scriptures. Now notice in verses 3 and 4, in these two verses, twice Paul uses the phrase, according to the Scriptures. Now he's referring to the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. And what he's saying is that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ was foretold hundreds of years earlier in the Hebrew Scriptures. In other words, this idea about the death and resurrection of Jesus is not some new idea that's just come on the scene. It's not something that the early followers of Jesus have just dreamed up. Paul says, no, this death and resurrection truth has been foretold hundreds of years ago. It has been foretold both figuratively and literally. Now, figuratively... The death and resurrection of Jesus was pictured in Jonah's life. In fact, one day Jesus was speaking and some men came up to Him and and said, Show us a sign. Show us some proof that you are the Messiah and then we'll believe. And Jesus said to them in Matthew 12, But He answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it. But the sign of Jonah the prophet, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Did you know why God left Jonah in the belly of that fish for three days and three nights? Because He wanted that to be a picture of the coming resurrection of Christ. That He would be in the belly of the earth. He would be in the grave for three days. And then... He would come alive. Jonah was a picture of that coming resurrection. Also, the picture of Jesus' death is seen in the Passover lamb that was slain at the Passover. At the sacrifices that were given up every day. All of these were pictures of the death of Jesus. Now, literally, Jesus' death was prophesied as well. Not just in pictures. In Isaiah 53, in verse 4, it is clearly... Prophesied, As it says, Surely our griefs He Himself bore, and our sorrows He carried. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging we are healed. Five hundred years before the time of Christ, Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah would die. That He would die for His people. That He would be crushed for our iniquities. Literally, the resurrection of Jesus was also prophesied in the Old Testament. In Acts chapter 2, Peter's preaching this sermon at Pentecost. 
And in this sermon, he is establishing the Old Testament basis for the resurrection of Christ. And he basically quotes from Psalm 16, which was a psalm that David wrote, and he basically says to them, this psalm that speaks about the resurrection, David was not talking about himself because we've got his, his tomb is here. His bones are still here. He wasn't talking about himself. He was talking about somebody else. Now let me show that to you. Beginning in verse 29 of Acts 2. Peter preaching, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. And his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up to which we all are witnesses. In other words, Peter said it was prophesied by David in this passage in Acts, excuse me, in Psalm 16, that Jesus' body would not suffer decay, that he would come alive from the dead, that death could not hold him. And so it was prophesied in the Old Testament according to the Scriptures. First evidence, the existence of changed lives, people in the church. Second evidence of the resurrection of Jesus was the Scriptures foretold it hundreds of years before it ever happened. Third evidence of the resurrection of Christ is eyewitness testimony. Now, our judicial system in Western civilization is built upon eyewitness testimony. People have been killed on the basis of eyewitness testimony. Yes, we saw Him do it. Well, there's no shortage of eyewitness testimonies to the resurrection of Christ. Look at what Paul says, beginning in verse 5. And he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Remember the upper room when they were there, Jesus appeared before them. And he told them to touch him. He said, I'm not a ghost, touch me. And he appeared to them again as they went fishing in Galilee. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. This was probably his half-brother James, who later became a leader in the church and wrote the book of James, who at first didn't believe, but later he did. And then to all the apostles. Now the important thing that Paul is making here is that these eyewitnesses are still alive when he was writing this. He said, go check with them. Most of them are still alive. Go and talk to them. They will bear witness. They will tell you. And these apostles, every one of them died a martyr's death because they would not deny the resurrection of Christ. Because they proclaimed that Jesus was raised from the dead. Now I suggest to you martyrs and liars are not made out of the same stuff. These were honorable men. Reputable men. And they gave their lives on the truth that Jesus was raised from the dead. They saw His resurrected body themselves. The fourth evidence. Not only the changed lives within the church, not only the fact that that, uh, the Scriptures foretold it, not only the eyewitnesses, but Paul's own conversion is proof of the resurrection. 
Verse 8, And last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared to me also. You see, Paul's own dramatic conversion gives strong evidence for the resurrection of Christ. Now Paul speaks of himself as one untimely born because one of the requirements to be an apostle is you had to have known Jesus personally. Well, Paul didn't know Jesus when Jesus was on earth. But Paul met Jesus after Jesus' resurrection. He appeared to Paul on that Damascus road when Paul's life was dramatically transformed. He also came to Paul in other occasions when Paul was in Arabia and Jesus taught Paul. And therefore Paul says, I'm an apostle untimely born. I wouldn't like the rest of them who knew him while he walked on the earth. He appeared to me and I knew him after he was resurrected. And Paul's life was dramatically changed. He was a persecutor of the church. With great zeal he would persecute the church. He hated Jesus. But he was dramatically changed by the grace of God and the power of the resurrection. He turned from prosecutor to defender. He turned from persecutor to one who is persecuted. This dramatic change that came over Paul was proof of the resurrection of Christ because it was that resurrection power that changed the life of Paul. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that gave Paul his new life. And it was in that power of the Holy Spirit and the power of the resurrection that his life was transformed. Over in Romans 6, Paul talks about the power of the resurrection. He says, Therefore, we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. Now, he's not talking about physical death. He's talking about spiritual as we die spiritually, then we come alive. As we die ourselves, we come alive to Christ. And the same power that raised Him is at work in our life to raise us as new creatures, as a new creation in Christ. So Paul says, you want proof? You want solid proof of the resurrection? Look at your changed lives. It's the power of the resurrection that changed you and formed the church at Corinth. He said, look at the Scriptures. It was foretold. In God's Word, hundreds of years earlier that He would die and be resurrected. Talk to the eyewitnesses who have saw Jesus after He was resurrected. And then look at my life, Paul said. You know what I was like? And I can tell you I was transformed not by willpower, not by my own might, but I was transformed by the grace of God. He says, it's God's grace that I am what I am today. That resurrection power. And then the fifth, fifth evidence is a testimony of the common message. In verse 11, Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. So we preach what? We preach Christ alive, Christ died for our sins, Christ was buried, and Christ was resurrected. That's what we preach. Every preacher of the Gospel, Paul says, preaches the same thing. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Christ was buried and Christ was raised according to the Scriptures. 
He said that's the common message. That's evidence of the true of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now what does that say to you and to me today? First of all, it says that the resurrection of Jesus Christ must be at the heart of our witnessing. You see, we do not serve a dead martyr, but a living Savior. Because Jesus is alive today, we can know Him in a personal way. Islamic followers cannot know Muhammad. They can't know him. They can only read about him. But Christians can know Jesus Christ personally because He's alive today. That makes the difference. And that's got to be at the heart of our sharing of our faith in Christianity. The difference is not the Bible. The main difference is not that we come to church rather than a mosque. But the main difference is we serve a living Savior. A resurrected Lord who is alive today and coming again. Secondly, the same resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead is changing lives today. We should be seeing our lives being transformed to the image of Christ. We should seek Christ's resurrection power in our lives. You're battling some addiction. You're battling some sin. You're battling some issue in your life. You need to go and claim the resurrection power of Christ for your life. You need to say, God, I know the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is alive and working in my life through His Spirit. And I will claim that power over this sin, over this addiction, over this situation. And you release the power of the resurrection to change you. Don't let the devil tell you you can't do it. You've always fallen. You can't change. You just say, devil, I am resting in the resurrection power of Jesus. I know I cannot. But Jesus is in me. And through Jesus, I can do all things. Through His resurrection power. Through His power that continually strengthens me. That's what Paul said. That I might know Him... And the power of His resurrection. Paul said, I want to know that resurrection power in my life in greater and greater measures. Because the more I understand and know personally the resurrection power of Christ, the more victory I will see over sin and temptation in my life. And the more faith I will have. Victory is in the resurrection power of Christ. That is every believer's. And then thirdly, Paul told the church in Rome, Christ both died and lived again that He may be Lord of both the living and the dead. Christ died and lived again that He might be Lord. Is Jesus Lord of your life? Is He your King? Is He your boss? Have you surrendered your will to His will to obey Him in every aspect of your life? To bring your life up to the level of His Word? Paul says He died and lived again for that very purpose. That He might be Lord. He saves you that He might be Lord of your life. And that you might share His love with others. 
Is He your Lord? Let's pray. Father, I pray Your Spirit would move in our midst and stir hearts. Convince us of the truthfulness of Your Word and of Your resurrection and of the power of Your resurrection to transform our life. In Jesus' name, Amen. I want to give you an opportunity this morning, if you've never come to a place that you surrender to Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, that you do so today. That you experience that resurrection power in your life. Now, He doesn't say you have to clean your life up first because you cannot, remember? He says you just be willing to turn away from anything in your life that's not pleasing to Him. That's repentance. And you come as weak as you are and you give all that you are to Him and receive all that He is for yourself. You say, I know I cannot do it myself. I know I have fallen short. I know I have sinned. And I cast myself, Jesus, upon Your mercy. And I receive Your love, Your forgiveness. I receive You into my life as my Lord. I submit my will to Your will for me. I don't know what that all means, but... I do so trusting You to teach me and experience that resurrection power at work in your lives. May you've been a Christian for years, but you haven't availed yourself of that resurrection power. You've been trying to do it in your own strength. That's a sure formula for frustration and defeat. You cannot do it in your own strength. But you have all the power of the resurrection of Christ available if you will but by faith Trust Him to work in your life. Stand as we sing together and you step out in obedience to the Holy Spirit.